Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Doomer Optimism podcast. Today, uh, we have James Ellis, Meta Nomad. James, I hope I didn't just out you or dox you or anything. Was I? Okay, that's good. No, 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 no. That's all. Everything, everything's out there now. That's not, that's not private information. Okay, well, host of the Meta, uh, well, Meta Nomad, host of the Hermetics podcast, a podcast that I've been listening to for a couple of years now. And it's been fascinating to see your evolution. Uh, there's a con- consistent strain of continental philosophy, esotericism, peak oil and kind of collapsed uh, stuff, deep ecology, and more recently, uh, your conversion to Catholicism. Do, do you want to kind of trace out a little bit of your own journey? I, also early on, there was the accelerationist stuff. I know you were, you were you know, really influenced by Nick Land. There was a tweet a while back that said something like the the Nick Land to Wendell Berry pipeline is very is very real. <laughs> uh, that perked our ears up because we're big fans of Wendell Berry. But anyway, just with all that preface, do you want to kind of lay out how your your worldview has evolved and through the podcast and your readings? Mm. I mean, yeah, you said you said the the evolution was surprising. I mean, it's surprising to me. Like when I look back, I'm like, I don't know how I ended up here. So, but it I, I guess it all sort of makes sense, right? But so to sort of lay out that, you know, to give into the myth of progress and lay out that evolution, beginning with the accelerationism, which really is like just nihilism turned up to the nth degree to see what happens if we accelerate everything that's going on to the point where it collapses. And normally, you know, I think most people in that sphere have realized that what we knew all along, which isn't for the individual who still has to live in the world. Uh, there's not really anywhere for you to to go as a as an entity, right? The the thing we're talking about is its own abstract thing going on. So it's you sort of like I don't really there isn't too much talk around accelerationism anymore. And I stopped talking about my own thing with zero accelerationism because I think we all just realize like, well, we're just I mean, there's nothing more we can do with it. It's just let it run its course. Um, and off that, there was a lot of esoteric stuff, and I got into the esoteric and the occult for a while, and. You know, I think that's sort of um, a thing that more and more people are going to be getting into and are getting into as still there's hesitancy uh, to get involved in what people would consider institutional religion. So they want they still want to give into this idea of like modern independence and freedom. So they find the alternative spiritualities um, and, you know, went through them and then just took some time out for that. And collapse was always in the background. I mean, that was always something that that I was seeing, I think, you know, and it's really turned up, especially where I am. I mean, it's, it's clear as day now and we will probably get into this, but the logical loops that, or the, the loops and hoops that people are jumping through to try basically prove to themselves and justify that everything is still normal, um, are getting basically on the point of absurd where I am. Um, and so from that, I think, you know, Doomer optimism is really, is a poignant yet completely on the money, uh, title because yeah I mean the Duma thing comes first right you have to accept that what's going on is the end the end of an era the end of a civilization the end of the modern world if you like uh, in terms of the way they foresee it but the optimistic thing is you know I think the optimistic part of it is that you know I've found hope with Catholicism I'm not here to be a missionary um, and push that I mean if it doesn't work for people it doesn't work for people and um, you know that's God's will whatever um, but the optimistic part I think really is the untangling of so it's like it's like pushing out all the basically the crap that modernity has taught you to believe is how things really are 
and the optimistic part is you know removing yourself from that and um yeah moving on so finding optimism i think ultimately it's been quite an ironic horseshoe like a horseshoe theory where right at the beginning you know back to that what you said about the when uh, the nick land to wendell blairy pipeline i'd forgotten about that tweet but it's very there's so many people who've there's so many people in the sphere who've quite literally done that and really there is a horseshoe theory of the ultimate complex nihilistic game theory you know really hyper complex continental philosophy and you go all the way around to man i just want to go outside and like grow some carrots and have a nice cup of coffee right and it takes you all that time to be like man this sucks well i'm just gonna like you know uh enjoy enjoy the simple things right and it's it's kind of funny that that's happened i guess yeah for me so i'd be really curious oh sorry sorry jason you go I was just going to say, for me, the doom or optimism kind of has two meanings. One is, mm-hmm. yeah, we see kind of current civilizational collapse and, and we, we view it, you know, I view it very much in kind of this civilizational cycle lens, which you've talked about a lot on the podcast. Uh, and, and I see, you know, hope in carving out alternative worlds within the system, but quasi separate from the system if we can. But the alternative, the other way I see it is more existential and it's more about, you know, I don't, we're all subject to the contingencies of history. You know, I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm going to make it. I don't know if anyone's going to make it. Right. Uh, and so it makes everything much more vivid, much more immediate and present. And so when you talk about, you know, sitting out in the sun, you know, planting with your carrots and drinking a cup of coffee, you know, like there's something that's just very brings you very much to the present. It's like, wow, mm-hmm. right now I feel peaceful. I feel, you know, um, you know, things feel vibrant, but I can't take this for granted. And so that's for me, the other, you know, the optimism is right now, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's right now and it's, it's almost made possible. I mean, ideally you could achieve that state if you were like a cartola or something, you know, without the, the doom justification, but it, but it's kind of the backdrop of like, but right now, you know, it's, it's beautiful. Mm. I mean, yeah, one comment on that. And it's, it's probably the, the habit that I need to, to get rid of the the most, which is this little device yeah. of the, the whatever you want to call it, device of the Antichrist, if you really want to go that far. But like, you know, like my days, my days fine. My day is perfectly good. I wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have a nice coffee. Oh, the sun's out. And then, you know, every now and again, I'll go, oh, I'm just going to like stare into this little black square. Oh, people listening, I'm on about my smartphone and people with smartphones. And then all of a sudden I see like 10 different things that I didn't need to know about. I never knew about. Me knowing about them changes absolutely nothing. I'm not pushing ignorance, but I'm pushing. I think I think really we need to define. You know, already going on for a digression, but you need to like, if if your local life is like a circle, and then the city life is another circle, and your country is another circle, you almost need to say like, to be honest, you don't need to know about things going on too far afield. And I'm not saying oh, you just be ignorant of what's going on in the Ukraine as if like oh, I don't care. It doesn't mean you don't care, but to the degree of like as we're talking about in the present of like, yeah, I've got the the cliche thing of like, I've got carrots to grow. I've got things to build. I've got things to build in my own life. And I want to be constructing a future like on a local level where I'm actually touching grass, quite literally that device brings everyone down to a level where they suddenly know about a load of stuff, gets you down. And it, you knowing that all it does is imbue you with negative emotion, which didn't need to be there. And you, you chose to be in it. So that's like, completely out of the present from minute one of the day because of the smartphone right so 
yeah, it's a little little digression. I'd be really curious to hear your like laying out of the landscape where you are. Are you in the UK? Yeah, I'm in the UK, but I'm in the so it's quite funny. Every time um, I have someone on the podcast who's not from the UK, um, they because I said I'm from the UK, they they go, oh, whereabouts are you in London? And uh, I mean, it makes me laugh, right? Because the UK for anyone outside it is now London and outside of it is quite literally back to like almost the Marxist view, right? You have the city and then you're in the wilderness, like where I'm living, you know, it's just anarchic. We're living in mud huts, which, which, you know, I'm in the, so I'm in the Southeast, the little bit that sticks out in a little County called Norfolk, um, which historically uh, is very nomadic. It's very independent. I've been reading its history lately. It's extremely independent. Um, but because this little bit sticks out and the UK is basically this vertical, vertical country, no one, no one comes here. Uh, so if you come here, you don't leave. And if you come here, you're coming for a reason. Uh, there's quite literally, I mean, to, to, to the extent of how much people do not leave this place, there is like medically have to be noticed incest problems in this county, right? That, it's like a real backwater uh -huh. place, like where I want to be, um, <laughs> you know, out of the way, as far away from London as I can get. And it's complete farm. It's basically our farming belt, um, lovely rivers, extremely flat. Um, and people who are very salt of the earth. So that's where I'm at. So I'm, I, I hate cities with a passion. Um, I like villages and I like towns, well, some towns. Yeah, that's where and I'm so, at in the UK um, though. Yeah. Um, so when you say where you, where you are, do you mean like the UK more generally? Are you talking about city people? But like, I, I'd be curious to hear your, your, your assessment of what's going on in people's heads. Cause I'm also paying really close attention to this. I'm in Uruguay, but I'm from the U S and very concerned about it. And the kinds of things people are getting caught up in the, the various cults, the various frenzies. I'd, I'd be curious to hear your take on, you, on what you mean in, in terms of the, the landscape of collapse. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Yeah. And the doomer, like the doomer it's side, like what are, what are collapse. people doing? Well, uh, I mean, I mean, I'll give one very practical thing. I mean, the other day I got a, a lot of people in the UK have just got a, a rebate from the government for 150 pounds, about $200 to, uh, to, to sort of buffer the fact that energy bills for private companies are going up, which makes zero sense to me. Uh, and it's not really that much money. I'm not looking at gift horse in the mouth, in the house, in the mouth, but that's where we're at really in the UK of like, Right. So I don't really know what this is. It's almost like a, this token gesture to be like, ah, things are fine. You know, um, you know, it's weird for me as a, I mean, that's why I sort of emphasized how peculiar Norfolk is because um, and why and historically why it's so independent. I think you could honestly draw Norfolk's this, this county and then you have Suffolk. So really, they're the East Anglians. Honestly, if you put a wall up, which I'm really for independent East Anglia, put a wall up and we'll just stand around. We could be in, as far as I'm concerned, we could be entirely self-sufficient you know right but we're right on the coast and it's all farming land and things like that so i'm in a position and in a place where which which is really alien for me and weird to talk to people who perhaps don't see livestock like every day right so like if i when i drive to church i see basically fields and farming stuff cows pigs and the occasional church like it's very very rural and i you see you should you should live somewhere really where you see you go, that's the food that I'm buying in the shop, right? And I, if I wanted to, I could walk to get my food quite literally from the farmer. Um, 
anywhere where you're not living like that, I just think is a historic anomaly, which doesn't last very long. And we've, we've had to burn fossil fuels. We've had to burn this finite resource to be able to do that. Um, so where we're going on, it's difficult for me to really um, visualize what's going on in cities because it's such a peculiar mindset. And I'm not sort of saying our oh, city dwellers are, uh, you know, these, these I'm, not, I'm not judging them, but I think we've really overlooked what used to be quite a very clear divide between uh, urban folk and rural folk. And I think that divide is completely still there. And I think it's in people's genes. If they've grown up, you can always tell where people have come from. And my only real experience of cities, I mean, I saw a thing on Twitter recently about um, sort of like a lot of people are doing these and these, they really fascinate me. It's like watching another world, but you might've seen them. These people who live in New York, they live in London and they're like, this is what a day in New York's like for a 25 year old. And then they're like, in the morning, I go to Frappuccino, like the new, and then I go to a pop-up for lunch and then go to my friend's art studio. And then I, you know, and the whole day is this sort of binge of entertainment, consumption. Um, and at no point in these, can you, like, where's all this coming from? And really it's like the cities have become these sort of parasites that are ignoring their host, right? They're ignoring the wilderness for them which is basically feeding them because cities cannot grow food, right? That's just, and they go on about vertical farms and none of that will happen. Like, well, if you're in the city, you are reliant on everyone else. And I mean, it does sort of worry me in the years to come that you have all these people in the cities and then they are going to have to move out and learn everything else. But I mean, I'm more, I am, I do lean more towards the John Michael Greer in dark age America, where he says when, when, you know, the crap really is going to hit the fan, you will see a lot of people, you know, pouring all their Xanax and their pills into a punch bowl and just having one last final party because they're quite literally their value system is based off those sort of Twitter clips of like, if they can't go on cruises, if they can't go on, you know, go to their friends pop up in New York where they've developed some new type of like hydrogen based coffee or something, you know, then the, their life is like meaningless to them. Uh, and that seems to be basically all they're doing. And um, yeah, it's a bit of a worry. Because not only will you have people almost like nationally migrating to different counties and rural, but that urban rural split will become extremely uh, clear. So, you know, I, I, you know, in a way living in, in the rural, in, in the rural area of the UK, I have connection to, you know, my, within living memory, uh, older relatives of mine used to, when they, when they were younger, their father would go out and sometimes hunt rabbits uh, uh, you know, hunt a rabbit for dinner, come back and then pull the, the carrots up from the allotment, which was, you know, the norm, right? That wasn't weird. Um, so that's in living memory here. I don't know if it is in, in the city and things like that. So that's that's how I see it. So it's it's difficult for me and it probably applies to you guys as well. Once you sort of distance yourself, the, the, the world that is collapsing, you know, collapse now and avoid the rush. I've done a lot to, to um, you know, collapse now and avoid the rush as, I'm, as, as I know you both have. Um, it, the, the other world is like, it's almost like watching a sci-fi dystopia of pretense. You're like, yeah, you don't get to do this much longer. And the way, like I said, the way they've justified what's happening, you know, oh, well, you know, petrol prices are, it's just, it's just, they're just hiking up the prices. Like, well, you're just saying things, you know, like the prices at one point are going to go up and, I'm already, we're already seeing this in America. I didn't realize the price of diesel there is like $6.50. $6. We're already seeing a lot of companies that are not being able to really subsidize their drivers to, you know, they, they can't afford to subsidize the drivers to do these long trips with, um, 
supply chains and that's that's where it starts to crumble and then you know we're, we're ultimately that at that point of like yeah but we don't get any more fuel that's not how this works yeah. so yeah that was a long-winded answer to say no, that, that was rural good. folk are better basically. i have one comment then jason you can ask a question i'm reminded of this guy who was like screaming i don't know if you saw this twitter video he was like screaming that the price of gas is seven dollars or more a gallon mm. and <laughs> he was yelling at putin mm. he said putin Putin, we're sending you a bill, and I was. We know like, that wasn't oh, like yeah. a spoof, like a. No, we don't. We don't know, but I watched it a bunch know. of times because I was laughing so hard at it, and it mm. seemed legit. But I do think that there is a thing where people are just like they can't, they don't, they don't have like the mental models to understand what's happening, so they're just like that. A lot fills into that void. Um, sorry, Jason. But it's a huge thing, though, to admit that. I mean, even I imagine for us, it's a huge thing to admit that this this world won't be like this much longer. I mean, you know, because from day one, modernity is this very, you know, that's why I always push internal exit of trying to sort of scrape out the rust and dirt that modernity has put on you, where you begin to understand that. Well, maybe like for, I often think of this in terms of food, actually, like in the UK, one way I tell people to collapse now and avoid the rush is like, just start eating seasonally. It's like, it's probably going to be fairly dull. You're going to, in the UK, you're going to be eating a lot of meat stews, but just the idea that people aren't going to be able to get avocados, right? That's a very common one, but it's like, I walk into the supermarket and you think there's like tropical fruit here in December. Like this, this isn't how this, you don't get this anymore. It's not gonna be awful, you know, but just get used to the reality that there has always been. Um, but then people think you're being sort of ridiculous or whatever. So they can, yeah, yeah. there you go. Well, I'm a, I'm a case study of, of somebody who, who kind of shifted their orientation. I mean, when you were describing the person in the, you know, in the highly urban area, who's like, you know, kind of gets their satisfaction from checking out all the new events, right? The, you mm. know, the, the, the new coffees, the art studio, like that whole description resonated with me. And I, and, and, you know, for me reflecting, I, I remember that I used to get a lot of my satisfaction from these kind of consumption activities. Uh, mm. and, and it ultimately felt pretty hollow. Uh, it, it was never enough. Um, and, you know, I was, I was otherwise, you know, I was developing an internal life, you know, I've always liked to read and I've always been a spiritual person, but still there was something, um, like it just wasn't, wasn't quite enough. Um, and now that kind of existential void is no longer here, right? Um, you know, after homesteading for a couple of years, you know, we're still only producing a small fraction of our, of our food, but, but, but to, to actually um, be part of, you know, producing some of your basic necessities of life, um, there's something that you can't, you, like, you can't replace that. Um, like I, I don't have that you know, existential void anymore. Like it's just gone, you know, all in all of the meditation I was doing and everything I was doing, uh, helped to alleviate it a little bit, but it wasn't enough. Um, it, it really was. And so I'm, I'm hoping, you know, I, I definitely, you know, like you said, we have to go through the doomer before we go through the optimism. Um, you know, part of our whole shtick is, basically trying to convince people wherever you are, you know, if you're in a city, if you're in an apartment building, you know, start producing something, you know, grow tomatoes in a planted pot or um, get in touch with, with local farmers, um, start producing things, right? Whatever it is, crafts, 
um, wherever you are, just, I mean, part of it is, you know, even if you're in an apartment building in a city, like, of course, everyone knows that's, that's just a barely, that's, a, that's not going to, you know, you're not going to survive a collapse through that, but it's part of uh, a paradigm shift, you know, an internal spiritual mm-hmm. transformation that I think many, yeah, many more of us are going to have to make, and we're going to have to make pretty quickly. Uh, I think we're, we're all agree with that. Um, but I, but it is possible, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, I think a case in point where, you know, a person who, who, who did that. And, um, and so I, I encourage <laughs> other people to start that process as well. Yeah, and I think yeah. on this point, Jason, sorry, uh, like, I think it would be interesting to hear, James, your, your, I mean, just maybe a little bit more about your process, because I think um, for a lot of us, like, it's just this crazy psychological process, and I want to be empathetic towards people, they don't, they, like you said, they don't really have a, a, a worldview that makes sense uh, for this, they don't really know where to turn, and so I think it is like this kind of slow I mean, even probably for you, you grew up rural, I'm assuming, like you were saying, um, mm-hmm. there is like this foot in modernity that kind of messes with you a bit. You know, there's some um, aspect that makes you maybe consumptive or maybe individualistic or maybe thinking that the answer is in like, you know, your journey, uh, a lot of um, life of the mind. So I wonder if, you know, we could talk through that process a little bit. I, I think a lot of people are going through that, like, at this moment. Mm. I mean, one of the big problems with the modern world is that the language that it uses is extremely absolute. And it's it's difficult to look back in history and really work out whether or not people living in different times thought in the same way that we do about our time in relation to thinking that it's the it's the the ultimate time and it's going to last forever. Like, I don't really I you know, I can't say because it's this is so this is sort of rhetoric, but I don't get the impression one of the genres of literature, you, just a short digression before I sort of go, go off on that, but uh, you were mentioning about people, um, you know, getting in touch with local farmers and things like that. One one first step I always, uh, I've said to people to advise is that um, the sort of genres of literature, um, I'm reading a book at the moment called like Life in a Medieval Village by, uh, I think their surnames are Francis Gies, I think it is, but reading about just the average life of different time periods and realizing like that, that ours is just way gone that you know and and also maybe you're not even starting growing tomatoes like read how a tomato is grown and realize what it takes for there to be like thousands of different types of tomatoes in the store pre-packaged every day like just realize you know and then and then when you go to grow a tomato like i love this idea that people are like yeah well if things collapse i'll just grow my own veg like the learning curve for for growing things is like five to five to ten years really till the point where you really understand things so um but the but the process yeah it's about that like like i said the language of the modern world is extremely absolute i mean the fact it calls itself the modern world is the inherent implication like finally you know we've made it to the time when everything's right everything's great this will go on forever and if you're if you're born into that if you're born into that, then of course, I don't think people can really be judged because it's like it's in a way it's like being born into a cult, right? You don't know, you don't know anything different, so um, you you can't really be blamed for being out of it. So stripping away the layers and realizing the sort of like in the Wizard of Oz, the man behind the curtain, the green curtain, uh, is a I don't want to say a traumatic process for people, but it certainly takes some self uh, self introspection and and real looking to actually see it. Um, 
I'm not really sure about my own process of, of doing it in terms of my own process of collapsing. I mean, one thing I would mention is that I, I think in terms of collapse, when people are talking about it, that you, you really need to emphasize where someone's at in life. So like if you have a wife and kids and a stable home, your skin in the game is far, far deeper than someone who's just has a wife and then someone such as myself who is just single. I can move around. I can basically pick up any job anywhere. Collapse for me is pretty tangible nomadic thing if it happens on some bigger scale where I suddenly can't do the podcast, you know, which I'm somewhat expecting that this this just won't be a reality in however many years and I might have to go work on a farm or something. That's going to be a far easier process for myself than someone who does have a family. Um, so when I talk about, you know, myself collapsing now, I don't have as much worries, uh, as many worries as someone, you know, who, who does have kids because it's just a complete game changer. Um, but yeah, it's the process. I, I know what you're talking about, the process of sort of beginning that questioning in the modern world and realizing that it's collapsing. I think for, I've seen a lot of people who, who admit to it, uh, but then just sort of apathetically don't worry and don't really think about it seriously so they're like yeah that'll probably happen you know society's over it was everything's collapsing and it's like it's a big difference between realizing it in that very superficial sense and because once again it's the difference between collapse and um collapsing so a lot of people are just waiting for the event and which would they think would be very cathartic they'll wake up one day they don't have to go to work because i know the whole financial system's blown up and fuel's finally too expensive and so it turns into bands of roving warriors where the reality really is right in front of us which is like why i mentioned the energy rebate thing in the uk it's like yeah the government is now admitting that energy prices are going up so much but so much that actually for some people it's not affordable um though though personally i do think that a lot of this is because a lot of people are using far more energy uh like to a, an absurd degree same with same with actually the, the notion of poverty, uh, which is pushed in the Western world, which I just think is absolutely ridiculous. Um, but we can get to that. Uh, but um, yeah, so it's the difference between collapse and collapsing. People want that event. The reality is much more boring. It's much more drawn out. It is the reality of like one day you wake up and you go, I can't really do this job much longer because fuel's two pounds a, a litre, right? And it, it's not I can no longer drive there. And then you then you suddenly have to start thinking, well, I have to get a job nearby and there might not be a job in your skill set nearby. So now you have to change your thing, you know, and people don't really want to play it out that way. They want the big thing. So start playing it out that way and see how, how uh, anti-fragile you are. Um, but one thing I think people overlook with fragility in supply chains, I mean, people think about food in supply chains and we've seen with, um, for instance, the, the recent quote unquote shortage of the ability for people to not buy buy or get on credit obviously get on credit actually i think it's 92 percent of cars on the in the uk are on credit uh no one owns anything anymore even though everyone's scared of that no one owns a thing um the, the, there was a there was a supply chain shortage of the micro the 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 ores for the microchips for the new cars right and people panicking because they couldn't buy their new you know massive gas guzzling suv which they drive two miles to the shop every day or whatever but one, one supply chain shortage that no one really seems that I, I think is really the, the important one is as far as I understand it, there's some fairly rare things that go into um, medicines. And for instance, I mean, over, I think it's now 40% of the UK are on antidepressants. And anyone who knows that 
drastically coming off after antidepressants full stop basically causes serious serious problems um but you could also think of people who are taking heart medication or um medication for epilepsy i mean just our just our fragile reliance on if someone doesn't get a box of something for one month they could probably die um and there's masses and masses of people i mean I would say in terms of you, you took the antidepressant thing and then other people who are on heart medication and older people who on various medications, basically to keep them alive. Um, you know, you're looking at 70% of most nations are probably on some form of medication. And that's really the supply chain that you think, man, that's only one month. That if, the, if people didn't have their medication for one month, there could be huge problems. And no one really mentions that one. I always think it's overlooked. Not to be, not to, not to yeah. sort of do that. Bleaker than that. I think it's like to too 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 scary of a prospect <laughs> for for a lot of us, right? Um, yeah. Um, well, let me ask you. Let me um, shift a little bit. So there's kind of uh, I'd say dueling memes and and kind of doom or optimism space. I think some people lean toward like in terms of aesthetics. Some people lean towards cottage core, right? This kind of like <laughs> going, you know, returning to some idealized past uh, you know as as kind of uh rural peasants but but you know with perfectly pressed clothes and uh you know everything <laughs> looks looks beautiful uh and then some people are drawn to like solar punk which mm. kind of seems like this hybrid of you know some kind of degrowth but also you know retaining some of the you know the knowledge embedded in technology uh, you know, that uh, w will will make our society kind of fundamentally different than, say, the Middle Ages. Uh, I'm curious how you see, you know, so let's say that, um, you know, we're, we're facing a highly constrained energy future. And of mm. course, our whole society runs on, on, on energy, um, including mm. all of our products. Um, but do you see, let's say, you know, 50 years out, um, do you see us kind of returning with a with a V, return with a V, or do you see some some kind of new hybrid that that retains some aspects of technology, modern infrastructure, et cetera? I hate to say it, but I see a bit of both. Um, so the one statistic that I love to tell to people when they go, ah, oh, sustainable energy, I go to replace all the energy that you just the uk uses and we're actually fairly good we're currently at 30 percent sustainable energy which really surprised me we're at 30 percent solar wind whatever and we haven't really ruined too much but to replace that other probably roughly 65 percent which is petroleum we would have to cover 40 percent of our land mass in solar panels yeah uh which is like so the solar punk thing for me when i see those idyllic images of like so that anime one for the yoga advert where everything i'm like well that's not how it works solar panels end up looking absolutely awful there's wires hanging everywhere they, they look they're garish and horrible like yeah. and I, you know and i think you know so i don't really want that on, on an aesthetic basis because one thing i would add in and it was a brilliant thing that someone i i can't remember who said it but I, so i can't take credit for it but someone said actually forests aren't renewable because once you cut down a whole forest and then replant it, you've lost that thing that you could walk into and you've lost something that has grown holistically and organically over hundreds of years. You've lost that. And you can't just, you know, you see all these replanted forests where they've gone like, right, three foot, three foot. It's like, that's not how a forest grows. And you end up with this horrible sort of thing. You know, I get that it is a sustainable source, but equally the, the return thing frightens people because it does buy into the myth of progress. Like 
oh, we're re returning, so it must be worse. Um, but no one's really going to have a choice. So one of the good things they can do is try to get themselves out of the myth of progress, the idea that going forward is always better, and realize that it's not a return in the sense of like it's worse. It's just a like, yeah, we used to do things this way and it, it works fairly well. And, you know, that's why, you know, as, as John Michael Greer emphasizes as well, read books about how people lived even in Victorian times, because people, the, the myth of progress has really instilled an idea that up until like 1980 with the, you know, the invention of Reaganite capitalism, when the modern world came into its fruition, everyone was miserable and awful and everyone hated life. It's like, no, most people were completely fine and normal and they just got on with things like, you know, People, people were still living to like 60 and 70 and, and being fine. And people going about, oh, they died really young. I don't think they really did. And we haven't really added that much life expectancy. And we're not really doing much with the life expectancy that we've added anyway. Um, it was really the industrial revolution where the, the life expectancy went really down for some reason. The, either side of that, there was, there was, it was, it, I don't know, people have this sort of, I, I really, I just really hate the fetish, the fetishism of life extension um we can get to that but in terms of what you were saying about in terms of return and solar punk you know the uk uh, is really all i can talk about we're already at 30 percent sustainable which really surprised me so you know if the lights went out in terms of petroleum i think we we'd probably be fine with very vital services and people were probably you know even rationing to the point of yeah you get you get two hours of electricity a day unless you install a little wind turbine or something or install some solar panels but it but you know, like once again, it's sort of the, the it's the chaos theory of that of like, well, how does that all expand out once you don't have? I mean, petroleum's the thing that people really, you know, like no more plastic. I mean, plastics is the thing that's absurd for me, absurd for me anyway. Um, every time you know I buy some meat from the supermarket, um, when I do, that, that it's like, imposes localism on you. Uh, just you know, mm. you don't have, um, you know cooler supply chains uh and and plastic to cover your meat like that means you have yeah. to get your meat very close by and very fresh <laughs> yeah and you have to do that you have to do that every day and you also have to get over the the uh once again the sort of fetishization in the modern world for not actual hygiene but the illusion of hygiene because something's clean and something's below four degrees as if that means anything right like once again just within living memory I remember uh, eating roast dinners at my my grandma's and she actually had a cold slab when I was really young. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know what a cold slab is, it's just a huge slab of uh, stone and you'd put your meat on that. You wouldn't have it in a fridge. Uh, that's perfectly fine. I mean, I'm starting to sound like Penty Linkelau, right? Where he's like, I ate the moldy jam and I was fine. But there was a lot of stuff growing up like that when I was a, when I was a kid where, you know, um, people people within living, living memory, living really deep in rural, rural things, eating things and doing things that you'd never, you know, eating unwashed veg. I mean, nowadays it's, it's, I mean, and this is all, this has all caused a lot of harm, especially to our gut bacteria and things like that. But yeah, uh, lo you know, locally, I mean, it's like, it's almost like a good scenario to play through your head is like, all right, say in five years time, you know, everything's not going too well. You have to live locally and work locally with four hours of electricity a day. Like, all right, where are you getting your, where are you getting your food? Like if I live near the sea, I could probably go grab a fishing rod from the fishing shop and, get some uh i believe it's mackerel mackerel season i think they're fairly abundant here uh oh. but you know that's a bit idyllic well okay so i think this is uh an interesting spot to to maybe lean into the optimism because i think on the one hand it's really good to say like we need to do this so that we can avoid the worst risks or the worst impacts of the collapse of modernity or whatever 
Um, but on the other hand, there's something inherently appealing about it um, that I've been having a really hard time articulating because it's almost like something you can experience only. I mean, it's almost like it's almost like people in the modern world are so alienated and disconnected that they like try to do meditation to feel something, but they could just go hunting and that would be the same experience as what they're mm. trying to achieve with the meditation if you understand what i'm saying so yeah, no, i wonder exactly. if there is something some way to like describe from your perspective that like i mean the just the cold slab the 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 fishing but it's not just practical it's not just good for practical no. reasons there's something about it something like a belonging to a place and a time and to interdependence with other humans and the natural world like it's it's hard to articulate but maybe you could it's give it a yeah, shot. It's, no it's extremely hard to articulate it and really it's what i've tried to articulate for a long time and i've had to stop because i don't think i could do it justice and i've sort of got an idea of how i'd like to in the future like a very loose idea for a book i'd like to write but Really, it goes back for me that the process, what we're talking about exit in terms of that, you know, dropping out where it used to be called and things like that. But people need to realize that that firstly, and I think primarily is an internal process. It's not always, you know, you can you can go fishing on a weekend, but still be absolutely plugged in and not connect with it in a certain sense. And, you know, this idea we've been talking about in terms of um, consumption, a lot of people like to say, well, so consumption in relation to consumerism, like these people in the city and their whole life is a, a narrative of consuming various things to keep them basically like existing in their day. And people like to say, well, everyone consumes, right? And I used to say that, well, everyone consumes. But actually, I don't think that's fair. Like the consumption under consumerism is the, the value system itself, whereas consumption elsewhere is, is, is a means to something higher, right? So you're not like going fishing in like, yeah, me, me, me and the boys are going on like a fishing experience, right? And it's like you consume the event of fishing. It's not that. It's, it's really difficult to explain because you have to get out of that mindset. Um, but one thing, yeah, so the way I begin to articulate this is my favorite, my favorite little passage of Kaczynski, and I don't know it offhand, but just to paraphrase it, it's, it's in the more personal stuff at the end of technological slavery. And he basically writes that there was a point when he was in his second year of teaching uh, as the lecturer when he was there for, for a very short time, I think it's second year or might, he was, I think he was only there two years, but he was at the end and he basically said, uh, you know, he wrote then um, I'm going off to the woods. And even if I die, you know, I, I don't care because he, you know, he'd, he'd truly seen what was in front of him. And I think for a lot of people, as we said that, that as you said, the idea of mindfulness was something to sort of almost like just ram down what's right in your, face you know to give them eyes so that they could see was it's a fairly horrible process because you're stuck so I remember having this process when I was in a marketing job um and it was you know I'm not going to complain about the job it was it was cushy it was just sat at a desk all day with in a in a air-cooled office in the middle of nowhere uh selling various products for whatever and I'm not damning that company or you know it was a really nice company really nice boss but you could ab abstract that just out to having this like modern experience and I remember just sitting there being like the, and uh, having an absolutely overwhelming internal feeling of getting there on a, you know, on a Tuesday morning, sitting there and just going, this is not life. This is not it. And, you know, right now, my job is now once again, sat in front of a computer, uh, talking to various people about things. But it feels entirely different because that internal freedom, um, 
which not everyone could get. You know, the modern world is 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 a bit of a bit of a horrible one for drawing people in and making it mandatory for them to have to, you know, work in some sense to get by. Didn't always used to be this way, I don't think, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I know, no, I know exactly what you're on about. It's extremely difficult to articulate, but it's often like this overwhelming internal cathartic thing of like, I have to, I have to get out of here, but it's like not the physical place. It's not the physical job. It's something uh, in the mentality and the, the general modern atmosphere. It's like, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. And uh, that takes a lot of work because you realize to get out of it is like an internal prison that you've, you've been trained to agree with. So it's like a very long process of scraping away presumptions, conditions, and default options of the modern world and realizing their anomalies and things like this. And, you know, that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience. It also takes a lot of self-introspection to admit, you know, that ultimately you're almost like initiated into this sort of modern cult of just bland lives. Um, and yeah. And unfortunately, because the modern world doesn't really have a spiritual core, it set itself up in such a way that a lot, I think a lot of people know that if they were to give that up in the way that, Kaczynski did or the way that we've sort of done in that internal way that because it doesn't have a spiritual core a lot of people don't have anything to go to so you actually are going into this weird vacuum and which is why I think a lot of people when they like fully exit they they can sometimes go a bit mad so it's almost like just take it slow have projects to be going into because otherwise otherwise you are having that sort of like basically equivalent of a breakdown you know just like the Nietzschean moment, but he didn't realize God is dead. He's just realized that absolutely everything around him is valueless and false, which is, well, it was what he's realizing, but yeah. This kind of relates to the concept you really like, Ashley, of dual process theory. Do you want to spell that out, Ashley? I I could do it, but I think you could probably do it better in, in terms of yeah, exiting, but also like a foot in both worlds and, and, and what are we doing in our, in our exit, both spiritually and, and physically? Yeah, I, so dual process theory is this uh, author, Morris Berman, and um, basically he just says like anytime there's a civilizational deterioration, things get so screwed up to the point that people are looking for alternatives. I mean, even if they can't access food or water transport, they like figure this al alternative out. So it's almost like a forced push, but I think it could also apply to the spiritual or internal too, where I think people are like anxious, depressed, like, uh, you know, uh, unhealthy in so many different ways and are just are at this sort of breaking point um where this like this means nothing like all of this is this is all so meaningless everything that i'm told to do um to gain success or happiness and again like just happiness as the goal is also a weird thing um as opposed to like meaning or belonging or uh you know like productive capacity in the world as a as a mother or a friend or you know um it's like this thing where you're you're sort of pushed by the 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 chaos the the um the deterioration into to to seek something that that functions better that's healthier in some way or another um and i think like that's basically the point a lot of people are at what i worry about though that morris berman talked about how in the collapse of rome um there were a lot of these similar to Christianity mystery cults that were like similar in form, like people just trying to make meaning out of this like chaos of the, the order of the world in which they live. So my, my worry is that we're at this inflection point and people are like 
like worshiping crypto, for example, and thinking like that's going to be that's going to get them out of this mess. And then they do really believe in it. And then it's like, you know, the numbers are going up. Like I chose the right thing, this thing. You know what I mean? So I like I really worry about this particular moment. And I would really love to, to articulate like I wish I was a better writer. I, I would love to articulate in the strongest possible terms the meaningful alternative that's available to all of us in this process. Mm. It's a very tough thing to articulate because you're trying to you're trying to instill in someone else a mindset that you've you've come to over a long time and holistically and something you know you, it's the great problem of philosophy of of being able to sort of convey to someone your internal process of getting somewhere. But as you say about uh, if I'm understanding dual process theory right, you know that, that, that having foot in both both camps. I mean, I think that's vital. You know, so one emphasis is to, to people, it's like, you can't just deny civilization. It is there. Uh, you can't deny these forces. It's super dangerous to do that. Um, and, you know, you've you got to be aware of it in the same way that Thoreau was, right? Um, you know, he wasn't far from civilization, but he'd equally, he'd etched out his own um, place. Or someone like, you know, is a fictional character, of course, but Tom Bombadil in The Lord of the Rings, he's, he's well aware of the world. But he sort of said, I've, I've drawn, I've, you know, they, I think they speak of Tom Bombadil and they say like, you know, he, he, he is of his domain, right? He's etched out a, an area and he's just the master and sovereign of it. But he's equally completely aware of what's going on in the world. But the beauty of Tom Bombadil really is where we all need to get, which is like when he puts on the ring, which we could take as a metaphor of all the, the power and greed and all the things of civilization. He's like, yeah, yeah, I remember this. And then just gives it back. He's the only person in all the rings who isn't overcome by it. Yeah. And, you know, no one really speaks about this because he, he's, he's, um, he's in the world, but he's not of the world. And that's a long process because the world is extremely uh, hypnotic in the way it sort of gets you to, to want things. And they um, left him out of the movies, right? Yeah. I was pretty disappointed yeah. with that. I was disappointed with that. But I think it, you, you, uh, you would have been left sort of flabbergasted. I don't know how you'd have conveyed him. But yeah, he's a he's a beautiful character, which I think anyone who's interested in the idea of the anarch or the idea of being a sovereign in their own world. I mean, Tom Bombadil is the case study for that, really. Um, and you he, he sort of just keep thinking back to him throughout the whole of the book. Like, What's this guy doing? You know, and he's and I, I really would emphasize that I don't think it's ignorance. I think he understands maybe as we understand that in a sort of a Spenglerian sense, you almost think, well, these cycles are just going to keep going. And I don't think that's a pessimistic thing. You know, you, you're, if you think that you're suddenly going to save everything and save the world and save everyone and create some Eden, you're falling into the same cyclic trap that we've had over and over and over and over and over again, right? That you're going to be the one that changes this, which is a very prideful, arrogant thing to do. And it's sort of like, actually, no, it's not pessimistic to say that. You look at history, we're meant to learn from history, but we don't want to learn from history that this too will end and then something else will, will grow up again. Um, you know, and that's how it is. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think I had this insight listening to one of your podcasts, but this idea that kind of recognizing civilizational cycles and that we're not on this constant linear trajectory of progress, it, it, it almost um, uh, imposes on you a, an alternative, almost a transcendent source of meaning, right? A, a spiritual source of meaning. And I, and I would like to maybe uh, use this as kind of a segue to to ask you about kind of, you know, you're, you're an incredibly well-read person, um, your life of the mind, your philosophical investigations, and then your, your recent conversion to Catholicism. How does that relate to, you know, this notion of, of, 
of the anarch of exit of of um, is is that is this kind of like um, your response to um, you know is this your response to um, well everything we're talking about right uh, mm. you know slow motion collapse of society how does it or how does it graft on Ooh. yeah it's a big question to tie them all together I think one place I would start with that is the the notion of hierarchy and there there being something above you that you, like you don't get a choice right the modern world has tried to flatten everything so that everyone feels like they are all on the same level and there's never going to be anyone above you and to enter into an institutional religion one of the monotheistic religions is immediately to say all right there's a priest i've got to do what i'm told right obedience and that's a big thing and you think well, how is that uh, you know how is that correlate with the notion of the anarch of this sovereign individual and i think one of the key things of the anarch really in a sentence is render unto Caesar, right? The Anarch understands like, I ain't going to change that. And there are things bigger than me. And there are things that, you know, even if you're not Christian, you can be like, there's things in the universe that are going to, uh, you, you don't get to control that. Mm -hmm. And it's really understanding that and understanding that you don't have this complete illusion of like imminent choice where you can just do what you want is, uh, is very key for the notion of the Anarch. So it's sort of like, religion first and then and then then the concept of the anarch but it's um yeah it's almost like just knowing your place which a lot of people don't want to don't want to because they've sort of developed this um individualistic world where they believe they can just do what they want and that's just not the reality so the more you deny that reality the more miserable you're going to be because of what a lot of what is happening is that people deny you know the modern world denies death it denies suffering it denies misery or at least it tries to it tries to prove to us that these 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 are things which not only are undesirable but actually shouldn't be happening at all right like you know a lot of just generalized depression i hate to say it but it's like that there is suffering in life right you're not always going to be entertained and happy 24 7 um that's not to uh to to push down people who have have genuine mental issues etc but but you know and and that's a that's a key fact of life and the more you deny it the more miserable you get but as soon as you accept actually there are bigger things than me there are things that are in my control that's when you can start basically living you know it really comes down to the question of limitation i think the modern world one of the things the modern world wants to push which is a completely illusory of course but it wants to really bolster this illusion is that we have the human race has no limits and it does this really by giving you a, an increased illusion of choice within the spectrum that it's defined. So it's like, God, look at look at how limitless we are. We're making so many more websites, so many more films every year. And look at the CGI, right? It's like, so if you're into that, it does seem like we're limitless. But on a very fundamental level, we are, we have very clear limits. And if you don't admit to those limits, that's where the misery and the negativity comes in. But if you admit, admit to limitations, such as like you are limited by suffering, you might be limited by your genetics, you might be limited by the fact you were born in a certain place, which is out of your choice. Um, you are limited, in my opinion, by an objective morality, which people intuitively understand, but try to sort of jump through hoops to be like, well, no, here's why doing X, Y and Z is fine. You are limited by that. And the more you deny it, the more miserable you're going to get because you're denying reality and you, you just cannot deny reality forever. Like it's going to, you know, and and the, if you could say, well, you can, but ultimately it is going to come and bite you in the ass when you die because you could people are quite literally denying yeah, people really just don't even want to know about it. And I think about this a lot because I think about, once again, that reading about old times. I mean, uh, for instance, life in a medieval 
medieval village. I mean, one one thing that um, not to be too bleak, but I mean, this was the reality. So it's only bleak from a modern point of view is that obviously no forms of um, birth control uh, and women would be having a lot more children because that's just how it was. But equally, they would genuinely just understand that they are going to lose some children. That's just so common. And I think the 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 minds and the mindset and the psyche the difference between the modern one and and a world in which death is death death isn't like oh my god it's so bad there's so much death but death is yeah people people die you know and it's it's like uh it's a fact of life we try to say that to ourselves now but we're like someone's died hide them in the hospital burn them and then we'll spread this abstract ashes thing somewhere and we don't want to we don't see the body very few people have open casket things just do not want to know same with suffering as well so right straight to the doctors take all these pills just yeah be quiet about it basically you sound very um ivan illich to me who i just got into (laughs) recently um and there is something i think there's something paradoxical that comes from um uh, not only not denying these things but embracing them i mean if you embrace that suffering is a part of life if you don't embrace it you're spending your whole time being so frustrated and, and anxious that you have any suffering at all so mm-hmm. all the time you're just your whole life is focused on like i should not be experiencing this this is a mismatch from the way that i think and your whole life is spent like i need to push this down to the extent possible as opposed to like realizing that suffering and death i think about this on the homestead like we're, we're you know I, I grew up in a city but now i live here and how much death there is involved in like livestock and animals and wildlife. And mm. I mean, my, my cats um, catch mice all the time and, and play with their little dead bodies. Like that's just so normal. Mm. Um, but I think in general, if you lean into it, something else opens up entirely, like a, like a whole different um, conception about um, the range of emotions one can feel in life. Um, and I think it's really exciting in some ways because like embracing that you can feel like extremely sad, but then that opens up the, the door for like extreme moments of happiness too, because the whole time isn't spent in this middle where you're meant to be just content, I guess, cog in the wheel. Now I sound like uncle Ted, but like, you know, I think the, this is the, the, the idea being, um, we're, we're being, we're cutting ourselves off from like a whole range of human experience in the modern conception of mm. how we should be and feel. That's not absolutely. a question. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, as you say, death is really what comes from that is an appreciation of life. And I'm sure in the cities, I'm sure in the cities there are dead animals and things laying about maybe. But one thing with the country is, I mean, if I go for a 20 minute drive, usually it's like, yeah, there's another deer splattered over the road because it's come face to face with the modern world. And there's a load of animals. And like, as you say, you know, living on a homestead, like, animal you know we we even hide, try hide as humans we now try hide away anything that you could sort of consider i don't know like icky right you know oh i don't want to know about that weird bodily process and things like that but like you know home homestead is like yeah animal like the nature nature they don't they don't care you know i like, mean even reproduction go, and and hmm. and like helping a helping an animal uh pull out some gunky yeah. lamb that's it's, covered it's, in I blood mean, and shit but it's all of life is there all of life is in that moment yeah you know, and it's, it's so full and it's so, it's, it's 
miraculous it's sacred you know and i think that a a modern uh, city person looking at that would be so grossed out and and it's like it's very sad i think it's like such a sterile existence to I mean, not that I, I, I'm not grossed out and, and increasingly trying to like overcome it, you know, and, and learn like this is, this is part of the fullness of, of the, of the human and the experience of the human as like a, an animal in the world too, you know? Mm. Yeah. We've, we've, uh, one of the reasons that, that we wanted to have you on is because we've, we've kind of been talking more and more about the role of religion uh, and, and some of us in kind of this doomer optimism sphere are traditional, you know, Christian or, or, or something else. Um, and, you know, some of us, I think Ashley and I, you know, I'm, I, I guess I, at the current, I have a religious sensibility, but I'm kind of post-religious in a sense where I was part of a religion in my 20s. Um, I was very serious about it and I kind of got disenchanted with it. Um, and now I'm in a place where, you know, I, I, I resonate with religious language. Um, I, I, I pray, you know, I meditate. Uh, I, I feel like I have a connection with God, but I don't yet see how, you know, um, uh, it, it, how, how it would manifest for me in kind of a, a physical, you know, community level with a, with a specific set of, of traditions. And I'm wondering, you know, do you see like your conversion process and, you know, we're, we're noting that, um, you know, Paul Kings North also went through a similar process with, you know, conversion to, to Orthodox Christianity. Do, do you see this as kind of normative? Like, like, do you, of course, I think as a Christian, you're, you, you know, it's almost your duty to, to spread the faith, but kind of from a philosophical perspective, do you, um, do you prescribe kind of returning to tradition or there's also a lot of people who are like, we need a new kind of metamodern spirituality where, or religion that incorporates or integrates the skepticism of, you know, modernity um, and is more kind of self-conscious and aware and create some kind of new hybrid um, religion. And I think in the doom optimism sphere, we kind of fall all over the spectrum where some people are trying to, experiment with that and explore that and some people are returning to to tradition how do you see that landscape and and i guess what do you think about it that's a good question that's a good question um i know i know from first-hand experience firstly that when i was 15 to 17 and a, a devout atheist or a devout anti-theist actually that there isn't much unless someone is already on their way there there is not much one can do you know if A and B are contrary, you know, Christianity, atheism, there's not much one can really do to bring them around, right? You're already both beginning from your position and I just, and it's two paths that go off into the world. And the reason the abortion or these very serious debates around abortion will never really be settled is because they're both coming at it from ontologically different viewpoints and they, they can't ever synthesize. So it's like, uh, it's just an impossible thing. But in terms of, um, you know, the, the overlap as well between this and collapse is very interesting. Actually, I'll bring in Lord of the Rings again, because I think it's just a fantastic place for metaphors. But, um, you know, one of the reasons I came around to God was because of sort of sensing a lot of evil in the world. And it's quite funny to me that in Lord of the Rings, Tolkien emphasizes that one of the first things the, the orcs and the Urukai do, and the orcs and the Urukai are really just humans that have gone off the wrong way, right? So he, in, the Christian, in the Christian tradition, 
evil can never create its own thing. It only ever takes good and mutates it, which is why the orcs and the Urukai are like humans, but they've gone off, which is how I see city folk, really. It's like you're you're almost human, but something your mind is sees the so but anyway, the first thing they do is they're like, you know, Saruman is like just tear down the forest. You know, and then and then the film, this is like you just sense this is the most evil thing because you're just tearing all this down for the sake of creating your own thing, which is just more destruction. And I sort of think that's the the sense of evil, perhaps a lot of people who are doing the whole return to cottage core or more of a nature focused collapse are sensing is like even to the point sometimes when I'm like, yeah, we, we do need roads. But sometimes I'm driving on a road and you see it as just this like great big tarmac knife cut through the the forest and you think how beautiful would this have been without this absolutely horrendous but you never people never question it to that level of like hang on could we could we live without roads and these horrible things called cars maybe a donkey path that goes along the contour and doesn't you know actually respond yeah (laughs) yeah, naturally there and the donkey stops and eats and it's all based around rushing around and so yeah and so that sense of evil i think is where you really begin and a lot of people will go off into various spiritualities. Um, a lot of alternative spiritualities I see as buying into the modern thing of like pick and choose. And I, the re- one of the reasons I really, I went for Catholicism after all my experience in these alternative spiritualities is ultimately if there is one God, then uh, I don't know, it's speaking to a lot of people. I can't explain it too well because I'm not, I'm not someone who's really going to push anyone in one certain direction. Like if you found your spirituality, I don't think it's my place to step in and, you're not going to tell John Michael Greer that he has to stop being a, a druid. and no, Exactly. Exactly. I just think it's, <laughs> you know, uh, no, I'm not. And um, I'm not going to, yeah, no, it'd just be absurd. <laughs> um, but why does, but why, why Catholicism? I'd like to hear more about how it resonates with you. Um, I think, uh, yeah. So as I, as I sort of sense that even in the world, it's the, impl- that's has the inherent implication that there is a good, right? I mean, to take the road example, you can either focus on the road or you sort of go look at these trees on either side that we've had to push back. And this, this nature thing that, by the way, we have, we have to constantly, it's not the road that we have to keep in check. We have to constantly keep in check nature, which is like nature is always the thing encroaching, right? We'll never win that. Um, so that and that and nature's, if people say, oh, nature's not beautiful or something's gone wrong in their psyche, right? They're like an orc or an urukai. Do I love industrial cityscapes? Sure you do. Yeah. All right, buddy. Um, but nature's always the thing, the beautiful thing that you have to, we have to keep trimming and we put a ton of resources in. I always find it absurd. It's like your job is literally just to stop nature growing for the sake of a road, right? Um, so sensing that and sensing that that's the good, wanting to be on that side. And then I think through prayer, you know, coming back to Christ was just a matter of personal prayer. And then in terms of specifically why Catholicism, I just saw it as, as the one true apostolic church. And I had a really great priest who sort of taught me through it and, I think for a lot of people at that point, it's where you, there's a lot of variables of why you might go certain ways. Um, but yeah, and I mean, you know, dispelling a lot of myths about Catholicism once again from my priest as well, that it's not some like finger wagging, you know, thing, just telling you what to do. Um, and, and it really is, it has a very long mystical tradition, was extremely beautiful. Yeah. And it also has a long tradition in terms of nature as well. It seems like it also is conducive to more of an intellectual life than some other denominations, right? And like, like you wouldn't get in trouble for, you know, your, all of your readings in, in continental philosophy uh, through non-Catholics and, 
and uh, some other denominations might might see that as more dangerous or something i'm curious if, if that was part of the draw as well mm. well i mean that's still a it's up in the air of whether or not i should be talking about certain people but it's my mm. job and i still enjoy it so no I, uh well anglicans would be completely fine with it i think but probably catholics aren't too too hot or happy about it i don't think but there you mm. go i mean i i do think there's ultimately you can't just deny the world like there there's ways to talk about things that are you know yeah. anathema to to certain things and you don't you know i'm doing the talks on the tarot at the moment and it's like yeah. well you don't have to actually divinize with them right it's like these are symbols and you can just look into them i'm not gonna start yeah tarot card reading well it seems it is, i mean i think it's interesting that after all of your investigations into the occult and into esoteric philosophies of various sorts that it led you towards catholicism you know it, it seems like from from that point of view you know if if it's the truth then everything in the world that you know in the both in the mental and the physical world would would lead you in that direction and so it, i guess if i was to like defend you from your priest or something i, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know your relationship like that like that's that that speaks well of of the tradition that you know uh, such a person would you know would go through this process and and be it you know finally this is kind of like the final attractor point yeah i mean that must have been god's will right like mm -hmm. and when i look back it's sort of somewhat clear to me that why it almost had to be that way um because i assume it is fairly common for some people to go the other way right they're brought up in you know often quite a constraining uh church for, for Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant domination. And then they, they still feel this connection to God, but they're like, oh, this is so stifling. And then they, they yeah. move out. And um, yeah, I went the other way, I guess. Um, but, it, but it led me there. So yeah, it's a very peculiar thing to... I mean, my book, you know, I'll uh, push that while I'm here, I guess. My book, Be Not Afraid, is really a, a, a way to try and metaphorically uh, articulate that process of going from the nihilistic modern world through to... Uh, Christianity is not massively about Catholics specifically. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think there's something really interesting in um, the, the Catholic orders, you know, like the Franciscans and the Jesuits. And just recently, I've been thinking about Doomer optimism as, as potentially being an umbrella like that, like an umbrella. There's something really useful about having pluralism inside an umbrella of, you know, we have a certain set of, values but within that there's like all sorts of traditions that, that one might resonate with more than others um i also think like in general when it comes to religion or spirituality just like homesteading or parenting or any of these things like you do have to just do the work yourself i mean you really just mm. do have to find your path in it and it and it has to be individual and not prescriptive from others like um you know i think it sounds like you found there's also something with religion in, in, in my opinion, um, that's a lot up to do with interdependence. It's a lot to do with finding the right people around you who are practicing it with you and the community that comes along with it. The relationship with the great priest is, um, is unbelievably important um, spiritually if you can find it, you know? So I, you don't wanna say, you know, you go to your Catholic church and then somebody goes there and is like, this doesn't resonate with me. So it isn't, it doesn't, it's not a good fit interdependence or, you know, for community for them. Um, so that's why, yeah, I, I do think it can be pluralistic, at least that's my sense at the moment. 
I think, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting idea. I mean, in relation to doom or optim optimism in this chat around collapse, some there is a tendency within, I think, the collapse fear to sort of shut ourselves away and be like, sometimes be like, we're collapsing, you're not, sort of thing. And I was watching, um, I was watching Tombstone last night, and it's interesting that, you know, Wyatt Earp run, rides into town and he sort of talks to the mayor, and the mayor says, well, this town's sort of got this, the, a gang called the Cowboys and they all wear red. You notice a cowboy from a red bandana that they're wearing off them. And I was, you know, in relation to what you're saying, it would be almost in, and in the relation of like Catholic orders, it would almost be interesting to have collapse orders, you know, where you, you take a, not some ritualistic thing, but you take a vow in relation to a lot of values and then you wear maybe a green thing and then they're around the world and you can go up to them and be like, how do I grow tomatoes? Right. They're like bastions of bastions of collapse that are helping people out. And also, you know, basically like a sign within the modern world that you're like, I'm within the world, but I'm not of it. You can talk to me about how to, you know, a collapse priest or something. And they, they, well, yeah, and that's they have to go, go through exams of early how on to learn farming. And yeah. Like a little symbol to know that you're you're in like you get it. Um, mm. that you that you understand the critique and then even within that like there's you put a fish on your bumper on your SUV yeah <laughs> but it can't be on the SUV it has to be on your donkey cart Jason um, well I grew up I grew up in the in the in the Bush era conservatism and all the fish were on the big gas guzzling SUVs yep. so yeah it's been quite yeah. a quite a quite a quite an interesting um, realization that not all not all Christians are you know neocons <laughs> no and and it, and it is a and it is a movement i think there is like i mean like james was saying there are two things i mean one person sitting in front of the computer doing work is not the same as another person sitting in front of the computer doing work and there is a chance to breathe new and different life into these institutions i think and there's a lot of hope in that i mean not just like for me the institution of parenting the institution uh or maybe not even an institution but the set of practices around homesteading um, you know, there are people who think like that is just so backbreaking, that's horrible, like that's surf labor. And then there's, you know, the, the, the kind of way we're trying to practice it, which is, you know, it, you know, balanced and, and meaningful and, you know, joyful. Um, James, are, you, are you thinking of getting on some land at any point? Are you interested in homesteading? Is that, is that something? Uh, I mean, I'm interested in it, but the UK, um, I don't particularly want to move out of Norfolk and land is obviously very hard to come by yeah um i've looked into it in like wales like there's really cheap places in the uk um specifically scotland and wales but it's is the choice of like if i move to one of those places and i just say goodbye to like every every yeah. friendship that i have right like i don't know anyone out there but it, it it's still fairly affordable in a lot of places here i mean you can get sort of a good parcel of land and, and a small house for sort of between you know 120 and one sort of 180 yeah. aren't allotments a thing like what 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 is the deal with allotments yeah we normally the way allotments yeah yeah we we still i think we've increased a lot of allotments in the uk recently mm -hmm. um yeah there's still a thing um and you know i think they're a good way of starting things um and i think we're slowly trying to remove laws about not being able to use your front garden and to grow veg and things that was like torn up in london and you know, I wish more people would just dig up their garden and stop this stupid mowed lawn thing, right? It's like, eh. or just let your lawn grow. Like it just doesn't, it's such a waste. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's a thought. But once again, it's like money, time. Yeah. It's mostly money, right? Yeah. It's the problem. And the scarcity of land. Um, yeah. 
I mean, that. that's, that, I mean, this is an issue that we've talked about a lot as well. And we kind of, I will well, speak for myself. You know, I, I kind of have two minds about it. One is like, well, just encourage people to do everything they can with what they have, right? Whether you have a porch and you have planters and, and, and just start developing skills, maximize your affordances, but at the same time, um, as you know, what we predict that's, you know, the collapse of current civilization will proceed, there will have to be some kind of sea change in access to land and, and people being able to, you know, to, to, to grow things, you know, at a, at a more, at a scale where they can start being more self-sufficient. And, and this is a big issue because like a lot of, you know, one of the critiques that comes at us, you know, when we're posting pictures of our gardens or whatever, is like, oh, well, you're really privileged, right? Mm. Afford these things. This is kind of like a middle-class LARPing, whatever. I mean, it's literally, um, it's literally the opposite of privilege. Privilege yeah, is being but, able to sit in some cozy flat and just have someone else grow your food for you. Like that's the right. privileged yeah. anomaly of history. Yeah. But, but, I, but, it, but it really, you know, I, I, I think, you know, and I see like these trends of, private asset managing companies like BlackRock buying up all the, you know, housing and, you know, various, you know, the prices of land going up and up and up. And, you know, I just wonder, you know, when there starts to be more of a flood of people wanting to move in this direction, you know, how that's going to work. And I'm curious if, if you all want to speculate on. Uh, well, that. I think when the, when the flood of people comes, it won't be because they want to, it's because they have to. Yeah. So then the options from the governments and things aren't going to be so much like it's just going to have to happen. I think you'll just see more people at that point, like probably, you know, like in Greer's um, Stars Reach, right? One of the things people are doing is just smashing pickaxes into old roads like all day, right? Mm -hmm. And people may be digging up their driveways or their stupid patios that they've put up and realizing like, no, I need to eat. Um, one thing on that, I, I don't think BlackRock's, BlackRock is buying up all too much. And honestly, I would say within the net, within within a year, uh, I mean, the housing market's already crashing. The bubble's bursting. If you look at, um, if you follow like accounts where they track the prices, I mean, it starts at the really expensive houses, but statistically in the last like two months or so, all these sort of multi-million pound houses that are between half a million and about 3 million are going for like 10 to 15% low below asking. Hmm. So it's slowly coming down. And it's basically a repeat of 2008. And Michael Burry has also said like, I tried to warn you guys. So really you're going to see from that is that's probably within the next year, you're going to see a time when it's really uh, good to get land. And, and, and you know, BlackRock yeah. looks all that good, but ultimately they might end up in a position where they own a ton of land during the housing crisis and no one really wants to buy it. In the same way that if once the, the housing prices crash, more people are buying places, anyone who's renting, I would assume landlords are going to have to take the, the price down because more people are then able to buy. So, and once again, back to the idea of cycles and guess what we'll do after this. Once again, we'll find a new way to pack all mortgages together and create another bubble and it'll go on and on and on and on as it always does. I um, need to hear before we end um, your thoughts on poverty. This oh. term, this term poverty. <laughs> well, I, uh, so, I mean, look around, look around my, my room and how I'm living. I live below the poverty line. Um, so, so, um, and that's, you know, I don't, I, I eat fine and I live in a, uh, just a two bed flat in a very affordable area where not many people particularly want to live because it's very awkward to live here. So uh, my thoughts on poverty is that if you read, there's a great book by Dwayne Elgin called but a voluntary, voluntary simplicity, I think. Um, but he talks about it. He said he didn't want to call it voluntary poverty, but my, my point is that in the UK, for instance, um, they're like, oh, more and more people are living in poverty. But then if you look at the definition of poverty, it really is 
completely to do with how much modern stuff you can consume. So it's like, oh, these people haven't got these various appliances. And it's like, well, it's only poverty if you sort of choose it to be. And don't get me wrong, people who are homeless, who are like, that's poverty. People who are living in their house and they literally cannot afford food. I mean, literally cannot afford food. That's poverty. But um, I'm, I'm, and this is, I don't think this is particularly me being conservative, but I've looked at the amount of the, the, the government amount that they give people who are on this line. And I spend like half of that on food a week where their allowance is double that. So I think a lot of this is education towards the reason they're spending so much and their, their notion of poverty is so high is because they believe they need all the things from the modern world. And actually what the food they're eating is like, oh, well, I've got to eat my Starbucks, have my Starbucks every day, or I've got to eat cereals or things like that. But it's like, well, if you get a bag of carrots, a sack of potatoes, some great, I don't know, some gravy granules, the stuff you need for a stew, I mean, that's not setting you back more than about $20 if you know what you're doing. And that will last you more than a week for a lot of that. So a lot of that is education, but it's because I think a lot of people would think, oh, a stew, what, what am I? Some sort of middle-aged peasant, you know? And I think it's this notion of like, well, maybe maybe you aren't living in poverty. Maybe it, I really do think this is the truth. It's probably one of my more controversial opinions. It's to do with what your assumption of the normal way of living is that makes you think you're living in poverty. And if you could remove that, you'd actually make a lot more people happy, I think. And I'm not saying everyone should just live in like, you know, squalor, but I don't think people are, you know, people are housed. And it's like, this isn't an, an anomaly of history that you can just go down the store and you're like, oh, I can't, I don't have like a fridge freezer fridge freezer dishwasher combi thing that i can do three times a day you know it's not poverty you know yeah. I, I it's i think it's absurd to me um yeah and it's, it, a, it's educational i think it is educational and and like having a critique of rampant consumerism is somehow conservative now where like i don't know i just like feel like it used to be a leftist thing to be like let's let's save you know let's not yeah, let's not buy every new appliance. Let's not overconsume. Let's not go to the store and, and um, you know, or go out to eat for every meal. I had a similar realization. I stayed in this um, tiny village in uh, Yunnan province in China, and it was pristine. I mean, the village was beautiful. And I stayed in like this really old um, home and they were giving me fresh vegetables. Everything was fresh. Everything, I, I, walking distance to fields, there's like oxen and there was like a sign up from the un in the in the town that said like the people in this town live on under a hundred under a dollar a day mm. but i was like i mean they're just living on the informal economy it's i i'm looking right. with my eyes every it's pristine here it's so much nicer than it was in any city mm. so they and need they that, sign. They need that sign though they need that sign abundant amount of food. yeah yeah, yeah. Is, well then i'm, I'm got, looking yeah, around like mismatch between the sign and the town which was like one of the nicest mm. places i was in china was this town where the the agricultural fields were tiny and right outside of the village yeah and then you should maybe we should start putting signs up in like intercity areas where everyone lives in like a two up two down with a 42 inch tv you know a dishwasher which they've got on credit and all these sofas and all these gizmos and say these people are living on you know more than like 100 pounds a week right and it's like look how miserable they are and it's that discrepancy. The first time you see that, you're like, yeah. hang on a minute, you know, and, and it usually is the way. I mean, you look at the statistics of happiness in relation to earnings that the modern world has tried to quantify happiness. And it, it, it only fluctuates between a difference of 5%. And that's actually not the, the people who earn over six figures are more miserable. I think that the, the good threshold is about between 35,000 and 45,000 pounds a year. Those are the, 
the happiest people, but only 35% of them are happy. The rest is like, it's like, yeah, don't do the happiness thing. All right. Don't be looking for that. That happiness should be a symptom of the, the meaning that you're living in existence uh, and ex- ex- existing. Yeah. James, before we wrap up, um, well, one, I want to, I want to ask you the question of your show, uh, the hermetics question, uh, three thinkers living or dead, uh, in a room, you could be a fly on the wall. Uh, three, I know you, you used to do five and now you turn it down to three so you can choose. Um, who are those, who are those people? Uh, that would be, I was thinking about this last night. It's really difficult for me, but they're actually all the three people who are living at the same time. Uh, and they're probably in a way like the biggest influences. So, and it'd be, but it'd be a terrifying room for many reasons. So what the first one would be Ernst Jünger, Storm of Steel and the, you know, Amishville. And I just think a conscious individual. And also he lived to like 102, I think, you know, so but would be an amazing person to talk to. The second would be George Gurdjieff, a uh, spiritual master who I believe probably did meet Jünger when they were in Paris together. But that immediately changes the room because I would be like, just on edge you know you have this sort of everyone who met him was like something is up with this guy in a very positive way and then the third which really would turn the room for me like would make me even more nervous would be saint edith stein uh, saint Teresa benedict of the cross who um who was so Jünger was quite literally was a nazi but he wasn't in it and then he later critiqued it and he was clearly critical of it and edith stein saint edith stein died in the gas chambers of auschwitz not that Jünger would have even known so it'd be interesting to have a conversation between those two, because I think in a way they're both philosophers and they both would have been trying for something more. Um, and it'd be interesting to see what Stein would, a saint, a Christian saint would say to Gurdjieff, who is this very alternative spiritual figure. She might be like, Oh my God, who is this devil? Um, so, but it'd been extremely intense room. And I think mainly because I would know that I'm in the presence of a saint. So I'd probably be uh, dead silent and just let them speak. Hmm. Yeah, that would be my three. If I was to add two more, if we were to go to five, uh, I've never met John Michael Greer, so I'd put Greer in there and be nice yeah. to meet him. And then... Um, two, two, two devils. Oh, Greer's not the devil. Greer's too nice, isn't he? Well, from the perspective of, 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 of your saint. <laughs> no, I don't, th- I don't know if she would say that. I don't huh? know. I don't know. Uh, but then number, number five, I don't know. I don't know. There's too many to choose from, really. There are, Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you don't want to leave the table with, leave this conversation? Um, a question that you wished we had asked you or we, you wish somebody would ask you um, if they weren't so dull? Um, anything, anything, anything else? No, 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 that I can think of. I think it's been, it's been fun. It's been good. I don't really talk. I don't, the, the, the irony is I don't talk about collapse. Well, I still love talking about collapse, but I, don't, I haven't done many shows on it recently because probably as you guys have found, it's super, super fun to talk about informally, but there's a point where you go like, I don't want to talk about it theoretically anymore. Cause once you've yeah. accepted like peak oil, it's like, well, yeah, no more theorizing changes this for me. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, and Greer, 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 Greer has said this, right. He said yeah. the reason he stopped the Arc Druid report was cause he's like, I don't, I don't like, yeah. <laughs> I've told there's you. There's only so many things you can say. And then you have to just start living with the, the consequences of mm. that realization. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I'm much more interested. This whole podcast is basically in the in the contours of the optimism. Like, what is this process like for all of us to try to figure out what the, what is worth what is worth living for? And what is what is that like? You know, and what are the pitfalls and how can we help other people if they're interested? Um, James, thank you so much. This was lovely. I'm so glad we met. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you, James. Thanks so much for having us. Take care. All right. Have a good one. Bye, everyone.